Welcome to On The Dresser. Sex, queers, politics. What's on your dresser? Our conversations are led by sex workers, queer folk, and sex educators. We call what we do, edutitillation. We use explicit language and discuss topics that may not be a good fit for all listeners. But if you like honest, frank talk about gender, sexuality, and bodies, if you know it's all political, but aren't always sure what to do about it, we're here for you. I'm Danny Cruz. And I'm Dr. Vanessa Carlisle. And on this episode of On The Dresser, we're talking with Rachel Watton. I mean, you've got that pretty woman image, and then you've got that whole thing of like you know, the ripped fishnets and, you know, the, the person who is drug affected. And the reality is, is that there's this massive range of people, just like in any occupations, but there's a lot of fear still around um, what a sex worker's like, you know, and what people's rights are. She's a longtime sex worker who is a sex worker rights organizer. She's a filmmaker. She lives in Australia, in New South Wales, which is a decriminalized state in Australia. And so we're going to be talking with her about some of her work there, about her film Scarlet Road and her organization Touching Base, which pairs sex workers with people with disability. It's a really fascinating conversation. But before we get to Rachel, let's talk about June second, International Whores Day. First of all, we're using the word whore. It's been called International Whores Day. We have not, it's not been something that we celebrated or recognized very much in the U.S. Um, it comes from France, mm-hmm. right? 1975. Danny knows a lot more about this than I do. Yeah, I actually got to go to the church in, um, in France. Uh, it's called St. Nazir Church. Uh, and in June 1975, first strike by prostitutes happened. What happened was street workers found refuge in the church. They claimed sanctuary there. The sex workers denounced the government's hostility towards them, uh, the insults, the aggressions by the police, imprisonments, fines, state taxation. They were, at the time, protesting a law that had made their work less safe in France. And Mm, many (laughs) many sex workers were ending up dead, and sex workers like to call attention to this, went into St. Nazir's church and um, claimed sanctuary, set up shop. Video was taped every morning and was broadcast in the afternoon on monitors that hung outside the church. This way, the women could speak to the street without being arrested by the police. Crowds composed of clients and pimps, along with some male and female bystanders, appeared astonished and speechless from reporting. I wasn't there. Not only did those bystanders learn what prostitutes' concerns were, but they learned that in many respects, they were similar to those concerns of other people, other women in the community, other citizens, other taxpayers. And they realized that a debate on the issue as taboo as prostitution can overtly take place in the public sphere. So it was an occupation of a church by a bunch of people who called themselves prostitutes who who were using that language. So we use International Whores Day to celebrate that movement. It feels like the beginning of a movement that's had a couple of waves. 
Um, and internationally, there's actually a very large and and pretty diverse and, and in some ways shockingly coherent movement for decriminalization going on that U.S. organizations and sex worker rights advocates and sex workers are really starting to gain momentum. So whether you're comfortable with the word whore or not, it has historical significance here. And so we're going to keep using it because it also is the hashtag International Whores Day. It's what it was called. So just for those of you who who might feel a little uncomfortable with whore, I love it. I think whores, I mean, I, I've been called one. I mean, I like to say that I was called a whore before I ever was one. And I, and I think that that's important to remember that it's, it's part of an identity and it's something that you can reclaim, um, in, in the name of your own shamelessness. So, um, so international horse day happened in all of the major cities. I mean, we had marches in New York and LA and in the Bay area and in Austin and Chicago and Las Vegas. And they were, there's some really wonderful report backs from international horse day. If you're interested to see photos and videos, just check out the hashtag, let us survive. And you'll be able to see a lot of what happened. Um, I was at the event in Los Angeles with, uh, with on the dresser's own Lauren Kylie. And we had, we had a great time. We met a lot of people and there were some wonderful speakers. We got to hear from Jessica Drake, who, you know, is going after the president. We got to hear from <laughs> Giselle Marie, who's one of the founders of the New York stripper strike. We got to hear from um, Connor Habib, who I respect so much. And it was really wonderful. My, one of my favorite speakers was Kristen D'Angelo, who works with Swap Sacramento and made the film American Courtesan. Um, she had some really wonderful things to say about the history of where we're coming from. They attack us. They attack us again. I myself began working, and I'm just going to tell you what an old broad I am. I began working in 1975. Yeah. yeah. Woo! I can tell you firsthand, at that point we had migrated back in and we did it in the form of massage parlors because that's all we had. We had street work and we had massage parlors. So we moved back indoors and they began shutting up like, I can't even tell you. Yep. I was a kid and I was dumped out onto the street and that's how I got caught by my first exploiter. Yeah. So when they say they're doing this shit to help us, <laughs> I don't want your help. I don't want your help. So the thing I offer to you, is they will go away. Something will happen and they'll, they'll back off like they do every time. They'll, they'll draw in enough blood. They'll have exacted enough from us. They'll decide, okay, there's a bigger political, you know, fish to fry. They will disappear. And what happens is we think, oh, it's okay now. Maybe part of us is illegal. Maybe part of us isn't. But they're leaving us alone. We can't forgive this. We can't go back to sky. We have come too far. Even if they back off, we cannot. We cannot Ooh. stop until all sex work, not even all sex work, I don't care what the word you do, all sex work is decriminalized. So I do study uh, not just sex work itself, but also the sex worker rights movements. Um, it's something that I work on with my with my research skills. And one thing that I can say pretty definitively is that the, uh, the wave of sex worker rights activism and organizing that's happening right now in the United States is unprecedented. 
not that there hasn't been a ton of organizing and a lot of work been happening since 1975 and, and even earlier. Um, but because of the internet, because of, uh, the way that FOSTA and SESTA galvanized people around these forms of oppression that we're all having in common, I do think we're seeing something really new. It wouldn't have happened without all of the work that came before. And I want to be very clear to, to, to really honor people who have been doing this work for a long time. We wouldn't be here without them. We wouldn't have the consciousness we have or the skills or the weaponry that we have without them. But we have an opportunity right now to be building a movement that is truly diverse, inclusive, and bottom-up, right? That's not just um, cis white women being mad about not being able to have sex in fancy hotel rooms. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, they're there, and that's cool. But there's there's a whole other kind of ground floor to the movement now that has a deep focus on uh, trans rights, a deep focus on housing and, you know, an adequate uh, job training and all of these things that really are about the freedom to leave sex work if you want to leave sex work, as opposed to everyone has to identify as a happy hooker forever, right? It's a different sort of focus about if you want to stay in, you deserve to be safe. If you want to get out, you deserve methods and ways to get out. Um, and so I've been thinking about that inclusivity piece a lot. And my conversation with Rachel Watton really helped me think about it because her organization, Touching Base, is a nonprofit operating in a decriminalized environment, meaning sex work is not a crime. So the board members of Touching Base have to be majority people who identify as either a sex worker or a person with a disability or both. And that is how the organization runs to make sure that everyone is adequately represented in the decision-making body of the organization. I just think that's really interesting and fantastic. Um, so Rachel Watton has been doing her work for a long time, and she is definitely doing a, a sort of advocacy that's not actually um, possible in the U.S. because of the fact that she's operating in a decriminalized place. Um but the notion that you can build a movement that has all your queers and all your people of every uh, race and ethnicity, all of your body types and sizes, all of your different abilities, disabilities, how I understand that there's people who want me to say people with disabilities. I understand there's people who want me to say disabled people. I understand there's a lot of language there. Um, Rachel's working in her community and the language in her community is people with disabilities. So I was using that. Um, and I think that when we really do try to build movements that have this level of diversity, this level of inclusivity, that that is the thing that's unprecedented, where we really are saying nothing about us without us and all of us are none. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation with Rachel and I hope that you enjoy it. Hi, On the Dreadstead listeners. We're so excited to have this conversation today. You're really lucky because Rachel Watton does not live in the U.S., but she's here for another hour, and we're getting to catch up with her. Um, so will you please introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name's Rachel Watton. I've been a sex worker for 24 years. 
I'm an international migrant sex worker. So while I'm based in Sydney, Australia, I've worked throughout different parts of Australia. I've worked in different countries. I've worked in all different regulatory domains. So I've worked in a decriminalised framework in Mm. New South Wales, which, of course, sex workers around the world are advocating for. Uh, New New Zealand in 2003 passed decriminalisation and in 1995 in New South Wales, Australia. I've worked in legalised frameworks which aren't as good because often it's forced STI testing and registration which I don't agree with um, and it's still run and operated and regulated by the police. I've worked illegally in lots of countries I'm not going to tell you where. (laughs) (laughs) And everything in between. There's lots of grey areas. And it's nice to be here today talking with you. Yes. So you started as as a sex worker and then sex worker rights organizer. Yeah, sex worker activist. Mm -hmm. So I've worked for sex worker organization and uh, Swap New South Wales previously. Um, Currently I'm on the board. Uh, though I speak to you today independently, not as a representative from there. Excellent. Uh, I previously was an international spokesperson for Scarlet Alliance, the Australian sex worker organisation. And, um, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of different independent activism. In late 2000, there were a number of us who co-founded an organisation called Touching Base, which brings together sex workers and people with disability, specifically in regards to sex workers being able to provide services to people with disability if they so choose. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about Touching Base. So I have only recently even been introduced to this concept because, of course, I live in a criminalized environment where this would not be possible to do, really. Um, So it blew my mind uh, when I saw your documentary, uh, Scarlet Road. If you're interested in in checking out the work of Touching Base, you can look for this film called Scarlet Road. Um, But I'd really like to hear from, from your perspective, like, what what was the origin of Touching Base and what is it doing now? Sure. So for the listeners, you can find information about Scarlet Road, first of all, with scarletroad.com.au and also with Touching Base, touchingbase.org. So as a sex worker, we have a range of clients, you know, of, of all ages of consent from, you know, 18 up to 95 Um, a whole range of different occupations, genders, um, eye colour, you know, you name it. And, you know, there'll be someone who has been a client of sex workers. And the same with sex workers. Sex workers of all all genders, ages, body shapes, sizes, eye colour. We come from many different other occupations. Uh, We're from different countries, so the reality is is that within those kind of definitions of what a client is and what a sex worker is, there's many people who are living with disability. So one of the biggest things when people see Scarlet Road is is they say, Oh Rachel, it's 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 not that I don't, you know, approve of this. It's just that I've just never thought of it. And and that's one of the, the greatest things with Scarlet Road is that people 
forget that people with disability are sexual human beings that in terms of the need and the desire for touch and human contact and to be treated equally and to be seen as sexual human beings you, you know it's very difficult people are invisible um, you know I mean accessible issues are, are horrible all around the world so next time you step up on a curb or you have to go up five flights of stairs to get to the front door of something then just think you know if I was on crutches or if I was in a wheelchair how would I how would I do that so we are very lucky because we started in a decriminalized framework for sex work so we were able to talk openly about it and what happened was there were lots of we were already seeing clients with disability I mean any sex worker you know may may have definitely seen someone with disability and the reality is is that uh, the you know, not every disability is visible. You know, we're talking about, uh, in terms of mental health, um, you know, intellectual disability, um, you know, schizophrenia, um, as well as, you know, the more visible disabilities that people think of in terms of cerebral palsy, someone who's a, um, a quadriplegic after a car accident, even someone who's broken their legs after a skiing accident, you know, or has landed badly in any kind of sport you know or even any kind of football where there's acquired brain injury there there's a huge diversity within our client base with clients with disability but the fundamental thing is is that um, people are very scared and nervous about finding a sex worker who will treat them with dignity and respect because where do most people find information about sex work specifically before as well before the internet and twitter and a lot of electronic media and that was through tv shows which were highly stigmatizing very discriminatory i mean you've got that pretty woman image and then you've got that whole thing of like you know the ripped fishnets and you know the the person who is drug affected and the reality is is that there's this massive range of people just like in any occupations but there's a lot of fear still around um, what a sex worker's like you know and what people's rights are so with a decriminalized framework you have it's, it's about labor rights and occupational health and safety and the police aren't the regulators so that's fundamentally one of the greatest things with decriminalization is that if there's a crime committed against a sex worker or a client then people can go to the police and should have um, their report taken seriously without fear of prejudice and without fear of being arrested or deported for right. that matter yeah so we were able to start to, to start the conversation and there were people with disability and their the third parties that support them so parents offspring um, siblings um, care staff working in the disability sector going can you re do referrals to sex workers that you trust that and that are very happy to see someone with this disability and there were sex workers like myself and, and many of my colleagues going we're really happy to see people you know of all abilities you know we don't discriminate and we would love to be able to provide services to this this subsection of clients but how do we able how are we able to advertise this how do we get in contact with them and then it's also about 
trying to support and educate the, the, the third parties, really. So the support staff, the parents, you know, the siblings, the friends, because, you know, they were very nervous about talking to a sex worker if they've never never gone to a sex services premises, a full-service brothel or massage parlour or um, a BDSM establishment or a private sex worker in our own home so they didn't know the etiquette and they were very nervous so bit by bit touching base has been able to kind of separate the the facts from the furfies Mm. so the myths to the reality and and, and really what is going on and really shine a light on um, people's rights and responsibilities and to be able to share more information from each side so for me, I may um, go and visit some of my clients in supported accommodation. So purpose-built accommodation where they all have their own room and ensuite, and then there's common areas where they eat or where they watch TV. Um, and so learning to speak to the staff and knowing that there's a house manager to be able to coordinate appointments, to make sure that the, the correct money is there, to make sure that, you know, there's a clock that's working in the room, that um, where's the sign-in book, because I get treated equally to everyone else, to making sure that there's, you know, that there's a bin there, that there's, you know, tissues and wet ones and, you know, and there's a fresh towel and there's really nice, you know, soap not medicated so ready for me so that I can have a shower at the end to make sure that my client has had a shower, you know, an hour before I've arrived, not just if I've got a, a, a 7 p.m. booking that they had a shower at 7 o'clock in the morning because we want to encourage and make sure that their dignity is respected and if you've been lying around all day or you've been sitting in your wheelchair and it's a really hot day, then you don't want to you know have some fun with your sex worker after 12 hours of sweating so you you want to be nice and refreshed and we want them nice and refreshed so there there's a whole learning curve from sex workers learning more about the disability side of things and how the disability world hmm. operates and also for people in the disability sector to learn more about how sex workers operate and where to find us and you know what what are some of the things to consider yeah, even simple things like, you know, we, with the decriminalised framework, I'm able to, you know, talk openly about, you know, when you arrive and you park in my street, um, don't arrive half an hour early. Like, you need to, you know, arrive on time. Um, please don't talk at my gate because even though it's decriminalised, that my neighbours may not all know what my working name is. But I can really stipulate and I have you know, very clear boundaries, you know, and also in terms of something goes wrong so I can give feedback openly, so. So even in a decriminalized environment, there's still stigma, there's Mm. still some things to to work out socially and politically, both for sex workers and for the disability community, right? So Mm -hmm. um, it seems like there's sort of a, 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 I don't want to use the word natural, but it's something like a... um, like a logical political alliance that that's happening there. We have for found that it has recalibrated um, some people's views on the sex industry and also clients. So, in this horrible era of where people are trying to say we should criminalise the clients, really, our view is no. Our clients are fabulous. 
you know, a real client is someone who, you know, negotiates and um, respects your boundaries in terms of, you, you, you know, we're negotiating in a mutually consenting adult activity. These are the services that I am willing and happy to provide you. And the other person is like, great, these are the services I want and I'm very happy to pay, pay the price, the rate that you are charging. And then we negotiate the time and the place that is mutually beneficial for both of us. And then we can talk openly um, about these services. So we don't have to use acronyms. We don't have to kind of cloak it in like, oh, we're just escorting. It's like, no, we need to be very clear because that is the basis of consent. If people are concerned about making sure that we're there of our own volition, then the underscore of that is talking about consenting to activities. And to be able to consent, you have to be clear about what those services are. So you have to talk openly about them. And we're definitely living in a time where I think both sex workers and people with disability are considered to be uh, unable to consent. Mm. Right? Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of parallels in terms of either we're both hypersexual <laughs> or we're asexual, that we tr- get treated as children, that we're not able to think for ourselves and make decisions for ourselves. Others need to come in and do that, or we need to be babied, or we need to be rescued, or, um, you know, we, we need a round of applause just for doing daily activities, which is all really um, discriminatory and stigmatising. And getting back to what we were saying before as well is is that clients, our real clients, are good value. And I was talking to someone else the other day about how demonised our clients are in this whole thing of like anti-sex work rhetoric that's happening not just here in the US but around the world and it's demonising our clients and and we're like, well, I'm really thankful for my clients because I've been able to travel, I've been able to, you know, go through uni, I can pay my mortgage, you know, I can I can feed myself. But also people can't separate the difference. So to me, when I go into a bank and I want to withdraw money, I'm a customer of the bank. If someone goes into a bank and does an armed hold-up, they are a criminal. They are not a customer of the bank and I think that's the difference it's essentially not clients of sex workers who are doing the atrocious rapes and sexual assaults and the beatings they are criminals and the way to save us from having to to deal with that again and again is for decriminalization so that we have the right to be able to report any kinds of assaults mm-hmm. um, and also in terms of if people are escalating so we know that people practice and become more skilled uh, if if they are violent criminals and you know there, I mean, there's been oodles of studies in terms of you know um, mass killers and mass murderers and you know psychopaths and that and you know so often it's it's disturbing that humans haven't learnt that if people are going to practice they practice on the most vulnerable society is making us vulnerable by not giving us rights um, and so we don't have the benefit of being able to give the police the heads up of like this person is escalating this person used to you know start off being nice and now they're starting to threaten now um, you know they they did this assault on me like criminalizing sex workers and our real clients is not going to make violent perpetrators go away.
So Touching Base does training for sex workers on yeah. how to work with people with disability? Is that Yeah. So how it's, does that work? It's um our first one, it's all on our website, which is good for people to, to read more. Our first uh, professional disability awareness training workshop was about three days and we were really blessed to have so many people volunteer their time and expertise. So we had a communications expert come in and do a session on that. We had some parents come in and show us about transfers. We had someone from the sexual health clinic come in and show us things like how to put a condom on over a catheter. Wow. Which is, which, yeah, you can do. Um, Eurodomes. A lot of people don't know what Eurodomes are. Um, we looked at colostomy bags, ileostomy bags. <laughs> I can, I can draw one and we can, we can pull it up afterwards. Okay. But, um, there's all these things that, and you're always learning. And, and unfortunately, because we still haven't got any core funding, well, we have charitable status in Australia. So, anyone who's listening who is in Australia and wants a tax receipt, <laughs> we can give them that. Um, so, but we don't have any core funding yet. So a lot of our work is volunteers. So our workshops are one of the only areas where we do generate money and we have to charge for them because we're all volunteering our time otherwise. So our, our one-day workshops now for sex workers is a starting point to be able to um, connect with sex workers, to be able to to start increasing people's confidence and abilities to be able to provide services to clients with disability. It's not the be-all and end-all, and we know definitely that the range of expertise and knowledge of sex workers far outstrips anything that we can deliver in one day often because people come from a range of backgrounds. People come from nursing. People have personal experiences of family members, friends, lovers who are living with disability. Uh, People come from the disability sector, Mm -hmm. occupational therapy. There's a whole range of life experiences that sex workers utilise in being able to provide services to clients, and that sometimes includes clients with disability. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a starting point, and for a lot of people, they're not sure how what's the best language or or things like what I spoke to you about before in terms of the the structure within the disability organisations in terms of staff and then house managers and you know, even different wording and just getting to know some of the basic elements within the disability arena. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. It's, I mean, it's not the work that actually brought you to the U.S. this time, though, is it? I was presenting at a conference. Um, it's the same conference I was at last year. So last year I spoke about the results from my master's dissertation, which was sex workers in New South Wales, Australia, who provide services to clients with disability, which is, is free for anyone to get on open source. Um, and... Yeah, it, it created a lot of meaningful, interesting data and statistics. Um, sex workers hadn't been specifically asked about this before, about their clients with disability. And I was, I, I feel, feel really thankful for all the sex workers who were involved with doing the online survey. So I presented that. And then this year I presented where in the world 
people with disability were able to be provided sexual services, paid sexual services. And there's a range of different services in different countries. And I will be expanding upon this, hopefully in a book chapter, and um, if I find some time with some journal articles. But we know about sex work. So sex work is, you know, pretty much in every country in the world. I mean, the penguins are doing it down in Antarctica with their, you know, their rocks. Look it up, Google it. You'd be surprised. Um, But pretty much humans in most countries in the world, some form of of sex work. But in the United States and Israel, predominantly there is a thing called sexual surrogacy. And then in different parts of Europe, there's sexual assistance. And then in Taiwan and Japan, there's these kind of more medicalized lending a helping hand kind of um, medicalized wanks or masturbation services um, so I was it was only a kind of a touch in the pan it's, it's you know 15 minute presentation so it was really getting people to start thinking about these different concepts and I could speak all day about them and how I feel about different forms of, of that so if you had to, I know you don't want to oversimplify, but mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you to do so. <laughs> okay. Just to, just to make it clear, what really is the difference practically between hiring a sex worker and entering a, a client relationship with a sex sur- surrogate? Okay, yep. Yeah. So sexual surrogacy is goal-orientated. It, it normally has a, a, an, an long-term goals and short-term goals. Often it involves a triangulated system with a therapist. So sometimes that occurs. Like I have done some sexual surrogacy. My background is psychology. I'm very blessed that some therapists trust me, know me, um, and am able to be able to, to work with them. Sometimes they have just referred clients to me so that it will be quite separate so the the client will tell me about what they're working on with the therapist um, and then we do our own thing and he feeds back Mm. she feeds back Um, but traditionally when Masters and Johnson started it um, it was a triangulated system where the therapist was working with the client and of course that was you know talk therapy and then the sexual surrogate is kind of like you know the practice is that crash test dummy it's like a safe secure um, environment to be able to practice what you've been talking about with the therapist so the therapist and the client would agree on what the short-term goal would be next time that the client sees the the sexual surrogate and then they would practice that so it's an educational process and it's not it's you know it's not always a wham bam thank you man there could be many many sessions depending on what the client is looking for and what their aims and objectives are um so but there will be an end point where you're working up to the fact that you have achieved all your goals and therefore go forth and, and good luck in the real world um so with sex work you can see a client and you can do the same thing every time for 20 years. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Which is great. We love our regulars. <laughs> and But it could be different every time. Um, so, it, but it, And it's pre-negotiated beforehand. And so while people are very focused on the wham-bam, thank you, man aspect of it, a lot of sex work um, 
appointments and bookings may not be predominantly about that, you know, penis and vagina thing that society often, you know, thinks it's all about. So there can be lots of caring and compassion and kind of talk therapy, really, and um, debriefing and, and chatting and support about a range of things. And also a lot of clients or sex workers feel very confident and comfortable and relaxed in sharing things that they haven't told any therapist or haven't told their best friend or if they're always been ashamed of trying something but they know that sex workers are very good at creating a safe warm you know non-judgmental you know environment so that they can explore things Mm -hmm. you know and I speak about it in Scarlet Road in terms of there's really harmless kind of things that people want and if you know we're able to talk openly about it specifically in a decriminalized setting so if someone wants to kiss my feet you know massage my feet or have me stand on them or if they've always been interested in anal play there's still a lot of guilt and stigma and discrimination about predominantly heterosexual identifying men wanting to explore anal play. So there's overlap in there being often a therapeutic aspect. Yes. But the sex worker obviously is not getting institutional recognition for Mm. this therapeutic aspect. And the sexual surrogate has to go through a great deal of training, right? Like there's a a licensing process or a certification process. um, In America, there is the IPSA, so the International Professional Surrogacy Association. So that's quite an intense training course um you have to apply to um to do the course i've never done that um here yeah but um i know others who have or have applied but also there there still is this horrible kind of gray area that the sexual surrogates in america have to work under because of this overriding kind of criminalization of sex work which you know in in your statutory laws it's prostitution just for your audience who haven't put it together that's when i'm talking about sex work sex workers sex industry we're talking what you would often hear is prostitution right one th- one yeah. thing that we that we say a lot on on the dresser is you know just there's such a large gray area of semi-legal or legal sex work but because prostitution itself is criminalized Mm. all other sex work is in conversation Mm. with that criminality because everyone has to prove Mm. that they're not doing that thing (laughs) yeah right unless unless they are doing that thing in which case they're just trying not to get caught so it's Mm. even the people who are doing legal forms of sexual Mm. contact or sexual service which i Mm. I consider sexual surrogacy to be sexual service right so Mm. it's a legal form of sexual service but it's it has to constantly be proving itself not to be prostitution which is so ridiculous exhausting (laughs) Yeah, and and, ridic- and and a massive waste of taxpayers' money in regards to the police, the courts, the sheriffs, um, locking people up. Like, I'm amazed that more people haven't kind of arced up and and said, you're wasting our taxpayers' money. Like, the roads are bad, the hospitals are bad. You know, there's people living on the street, 
you know, you need better shelter, you know, you need to feed the homeless, you need to empower people um, to be able to um, go back to school and, 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 you know, there's a whole range of things in society that your money could be going towards that would really positively impact everyone in society instead of going after what we know is it's victimless crime. I guess doing full circle and coming back to the things that I work on and contribute to, which I feel very, very lucky, is in terms of touching base, it really changes the narrative. Um, touching base's constitution has it written in our constitution for like a board, I guess, or a committee, um, is that the majority of people have to identify as being someone with disability or a sex worker or both, because we know that um, it's not mutually exclusive, that um, for some people sex work is a fantastic industry to be a part of if you're living with a whole range of different disabilities, whether you're recovering from cancer, whether you have um, chronic fatigue, um, and a whole range of of different disabilities. It's been really good and supportive for people to be able to be empowered to be able to look after themselves not go on social benefits to keep a roof over their head to be able to pay for medication keep their kids in school you know etc etc right so the organization is run by its constituents Mm. that's yes and we have great we have great allies of course um and other people on the board who are fantastic but it's always about the voices mm-hmm. of yeah the constituents. They're nothing about us without us, and I think that's where a lot of countries go wrong in terms of funding for organisations or listening. So I often say that if there were laws that were going to be passed about cardiac surgeons in terms of better occupational health and safety and labour rights... The very first people at the table would be cardiac surgeons. Like, I'm not a cardiac surgeon. I wouldn't have a clue what goes on there. I'm very grateful that there are people that are cardiac surgeons, but I have no right to speak about what is best for them. And I think what we find here and in Australia and around the world is that people think that they have a right to speak about us as sex workers or speak about clients without ever being one. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for saying that. That's so cool. Such great stuff. Thank you so much for this conversation. I feel really Mm. lucky to have been able to catch you before you catch your plane. Oh, likewise. (laughs) It's a great great last day and it's really sunny. Um, So how can people find you and find your work? Give us your contact info. Okay, so um, I'm just currently upgrading my website. So www.rachelwatton.com. Watton is? W-O-T-T-O-N. So like cotton, but with a W. (laughs) And then obviously touchingbase.org and then scarletroad.com.au. And so Scarlet Road is also on Facebook and Touching Base Inc. is also on Facebook. Scarlet Road is a great film. Go watch it. Okay. Thank you so much, Rachel. My pleasure. You know, I've, 
I've never actually heard somebody speak from a a position where they felt confident because they live in a decriminalized space. And hearing Rachel Watton's uh, interview, like it, it excited me. Mm. Like the, just thinking of the possibilities. Like I have a background as a nurse, so I have a little. I have I have the training that that Rachel was talking about, or that uh, her organization does. Like you know how to do bed transfers and things like that. Um, and I've never really like made that connection of that possibility because we live in a criminalized environment. Um, it's so much harder, I feel, on both sides to express one's needs right. um, openly uh, when you're trying to find a provider or when you're trying to be a provider who's scheduling with a person who may need some different kind of attention or care. Because we're in a, an environment that's criminalized like the U.S., there's so much anxiety that the other person's law enforcement or that you're going to get in trouble or um, busted for doing something that, uh, I, I don't know, I feel like that, that can't be an easy thing to do. Right. Uh, as a person who might need a, a specialized service um, to go out there and ask for that because... You know, with a new provider, you don't know who that is. You know, you might not know them. You, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that, that we can imagine that can go wrong because of criminalization. And it, it, it really excited and inspired me to listen to Rachel's interview, to, to hear her talk from a place of decriminalization where she's like, no, I can work for the better of people, not keep myself out of jail. Exactly. It helps to expand the imagination of what is possible. So if our movement is hell-bent on decriminalization, which is really important, right? I'm, I mean, we, we can hammer it all day long, decrim, decrim, decrim. That's great. However, decrim doesn't fix societal prejudice against people with disability. Decrim doesn't fix societal prejudice against trans people right? We have, it doesn't fix racism. It doesn't fix any of these things. What it does is it creates a little more breathing room, a little more space for us to address those issues more directly. That's how I see it. The decrim is a very important, very, very necessary step in helping people just have enough safety that they're not getting constantly traumatized. Mm-hmm. And they're not getting constantly reactivated in their anxiety. And they're not constantly fighting just for the right to make a living. And then once we have that, then we can get way, way even more creative about these bigger visions and bigger ideas. And it, it's important not to forget that. Not to. It's important not to get too tunnel vision in your movement to think, okay, once we achieve decriminalization, then we, then we have won. You know, it's it's ongoing. It keeps going. We we don't even have anything near decriminalization in this country. We have one county in Nevada with one type that's legal. So fuck that. Like that's not. <laughs> you know, <like>, no. <laughs> we have so far to go to get even decrim. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be imagining possibilities that are bigger and larger and wider and and more fruitful and more inspiring because we have to keep going. And sometimes it's those visions that, that keep us fighting for, for what we need. But it was interesting for 
me to sit at the table with Rachel. And more than once she expressed, and I didn't catch it all on tape, but more than once she expressed a kind of concern. And I don't want to call it pity because she definitely didn't pity me, but she did offer a kind of like, well, I don't have it as hard as you do here to me. And I'm so used to being in the position of having to think about my privilege as a white worker and as a cis worker. I'm so used to having to think that way that having someone look at me and be like, well, I don't have it as hard as you. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, right. Well, I mean, you know, we're, we're dealing with Foster Sesta. We're um, listening to uh, we're watching this banking bill um, go through Congress um, at the same time that we're organizing International Horse Day rallies and marches and lobby days, uh, we have reports that Operation Cross Country is starting early, um, possibly as a response to all that. Um, so when she says that, yeah, she, I, I, I feel that, right? Because look at all that's on our plate there versus... Yeah, she's right. I mean, the more we organize... The more repression we will face, the more repression we face, the more motivated we will be to organize. It is the cyclic nature of movement building. And I think she's right that we have to keep in mind that we're oper operating under a very strict and, and terrorizing regime when it comes to the sexual service. Mm. On the positive... <laughs> We are amazing. We're resilient as shit. She's super excited about this podcast. She was so excited to be a part of it. She was excited to hear about what's happening. You know, there's we have people like Norma Jean Almodovar, who is a organizer from the from the 80s and 90s, who is still around, still making uh, website for us to use information to build our movement. Like we have elders in our movement we can look up to. We have lots of ways of finding each other still. And I saw on June 2nd, a lot of people whose faces I'd never seen before, which is a thrill. And I saw a lot of energy and a lot of courage and a lot of people who are like, this is ridiculous. Like, it's mm -hmm. not just like, fuck Trump. It's actually a much larger, much broader con consciousness shift mm -hmm. around people owning their bodies and wanting to be able to make decisions about their own lives. I um, made it a big point to be out as a sex worker on June 2nd. I went to an event called Queer Bomb in Austin. Um, it's kind of like an anti-pride um, or maybe a pro-pride in that it's not corporate sponsored. It's actual pride, community pride. Um, and I wore my Be Nice to Sex Workers shirts. And so many people came up to me wanting to express sympathy, empathy. I don't know which one fits there about FOSTA-SESTA. Mm. They're like, I called my, a couple of people said that they called their representatives. They didn't out themselves to me. I don't know if they were sex workers as well. Um, but I did definitely see a, a different consciousness with the public at large that I engaged with as an out sex worker um, this, this past June 2nd. Like I, I felt that in a way that I hadn't before. I have been, in, I have been feeling that too. I had a session with a very lovely and wonderful couple 
that I, I really love working with. They're a straight couple and um, they, so I, I occupy a fantasy space with them. You know, it's, it's my sex working persona. And so they don't know a, a whole lot about anything that happens in the rest of my life, but they're, they're really wonderful people. And as they were leaving, they asked me if, if Venmo worked for me because they had, they had sent some money. And I was like, you know what? I hate to say this and I know it's a downer, but I actually would prefer if you don't use Venmo because people are having their accounts seized who have done nothing illegal. Like they're just seizing adult accounts and it's not as safe for me as it once was. And they knew what I was talking about. They knew it was coming from FOSTA SESTA and they asked me if there was anything they could do. And I was like, yes, you can call your representatives and also be consistent. See me on a regular Come see me in a regular way <laughs> because mm-hmm. honestly, it's hard to get new clients right now. It is diff- yeah. it's, it's more difficult to get new clients and we do need to lean on our regulars, you know, and it was like, it was a weird breaking of the fourth wall thing that happened where we just sort of lifted the veil and it was like, I'm a worker, I'm a provider and you know, like, yeah, this is what I need for my business to stay afloat. <laughs> Yeah. And they were really kind. They were lovely and they knew what they were talking about. They'd been, you know, I don't know if they'd read the Rolling Stone piece or whatever, but they had an idea about what was going on. And I have not encountered that before. Almost always I'm in the educator position with people about what's going on mm-hmm. with sex work in the news. So it was really interesting. Yeah. 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 So thank you very much on the dresser listeners and thank you for your patience as this episode took us a little bit longer to pop out the gate or I don't know what, whatever that analogy is. I'm a creative writer. Uh, thank you. for <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your, thank you for your patience and for your likes and your shares. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, please feel free to send us comments and suggestions, show ideas, other feedback via your text-based platforms, or you can record a message for us to listen to. Our email is onthedresser at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at onthedresser, too. Yeah, we're also on Facebook at onthedresser as well. You can catch up on past episodes of On The Dresser on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. Uh, please, 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 please rate, review, and share. It really helps us grow, and we're in that mode right now. All our episodes are produced by myself, Danny Cruz, Dr. Vanessa Carlisle, and Lauren Kylie. Our music for this episode was done by Lou Gomez. And if you just want to catch up on old episodes or find any more information about any of us, you can visit our website at onthedresserpodcast.com. All right, y'all. All power to the people. All pleasure to the people. Good Good night night and and good good fuck. fuck.